Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbont on Twitter. I feel very out of practice because it's been a little while since I've recorded one of these, which is weird. Uh, but uh, a little while, I guess, is like two weeks. So apologies for the one week uh, delay between these. But I'm here. I'm really happy to have on the show uh, Kevin Snow uh, goes by the at Brave Mule on Twitter. And uh, we have them here to talk to us about, I mean, all, all sorts of stuff. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. I'm really excited to be here. So you, um, the way we kind of became acquainted, uh, was via this, uh, this quirky, interesting, underrated game called, uh, Pathologic 2, uh, which is a reimagining, reinventing, remastering of the original sort of cult classic Pathologic, um, I want to touch on this. I just want to get to this early because I, I also want to talk about all of your other work uh, sort of in the meat of the show. Um, but you were sort of you were the localizer on uh, Pathologic 2 and uh, you were telling me why you did it. Um, I think people would be really interested in hearing why you decided to uh, to get involved in localizing since it's not usually a job you take on. Yeah, I'm usually like a narrative designer and writer in games, um, but mm -hmm. actually part of the reason I became a writer and narrative designer is because of the original Pathologic, um, which came cool. out in 2005 or so, and it's obviously this really weird um, niche, um, especially at the time, open world game, which in the mid-2000s was pretty unusual. Like, you know, you had some games, but the vocabulary for them, like the game design vocabulary wasn't really established. So you had this like obscure right. Eastern European Russian um, open world game that was super janky, super unpolished. Like at the time, <laughs> like part, major parts of the script were like machine translated, which I loved. It gave it like this really surreal <laughs> quality. Um, 
like half the time he really couldn't even parse what was going on in the story. Um, yeah. And it kind of gained traction after, like over a course of years, like Rock, Paper, Shotgun did this article series um, with Quentin Smith where he kind of played through the game. And that was actually how I found out about it in like 2008 or 2009. I was, okay. I was like, I think I was like 18 or 19. I was in community college and I checked out the game because of that article series. Um and I ended up loving the game so much that in undergrad, I started studying Russian and Russian literature and Russian history because um, I was a history major. So I took like mm -hmm. as many courses as I could in that department. Um, I didn't end up minoring in it, but I think I had like the sufficient credits to, um, but I ended up minoring in something else just because of, you know, undergrad shit. I mean, uh, the good news is that, like the, from, from what I hear minors, I mean, I, I should know this more because I, I teach part-time at a college but minors don't really I guess, I guess they're sort of just like vanity things it yeah. sounds like uh you've basically like you've you've, you've uh, over overachieved beyond any sort of minor I've ever heard of <laughs> um <laughs> I mean that's really cool like I one of the things I was I was taken by by the localization uh in pathologic 2 which I paid a lot more attention to after after we spoke um I was really impressed by the game initially, and then uh, and then after I knew that you localized it, I decided to pay a little more attention to that. And you know, one of the things that has struck me so much about localization to begin with is how difficult it must be, um, how like absolutely hard it is to uh, pair together things from you know. Uh, over translation and then make them such that you understand the initial enough that you can produce a quality of, um, you know, actual, uh, cultural transmission in the, in the new version. Um, and I really was like, I, I got the feeling people asked me about, uh, pathologic two and I tweeted about it. They were like, Oh, is it really Russian? Like pathologic one? And I was like, yeah, no, totally. But it doesn't feel Russian in the way that like, Oh, I can't, I can't relate with this at all. It just makes no sense to me. Totally makes sense. Um, so did you find that narrative design helped you understand uh, localization a little bit uh, better or put a different way? Did that skill set help you with uh, with what would seem to be a, a sort of different skill set there? Yeah, absolutely. Like, especially because so much of the reason I started making games was because of the first Pathologic, which was... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, like I was fascinated by how broken the story in it was essentially, but it had like this really like beautiful poetic <laughs> quality to how broken it was. Um, so when I like started making games, I was thinking actually about the processes of like, um, like cultural communication and translation and mm. localization. Cause like one of the earliest games I actually made was called the Domovoy, which was this, uh, twine game based off Russian folklore about this Soviet storyteller who's um, telling this story to you, the player, about this um, old Russian folklore character who they're kind of reinterpreting for the political moment. And they're having oh. difficulty as they tell the story, trying to translate the story in a way. Um, so... It was really interesting because after I, I, like, I kind of ended up going full circle when I ended up working on Pathologic because I was originally making games that were kind of inspired by my love <laughs> of how strange the original game was. And then I had to kind of reinterpret 
the story that I thought I understood. Um, yeah. But actually, I didn't because, like, at the time, I didn't know Russian. Like, so I wasn't really familiar with the Russian script. And then I had to learn to read Russian better for the localization. And I ended up understanding the story in a completely different way. So I was kind of, like, comparing my old understanding to my new understanding and, like, trying to retain the mood and the emotions that I had when I played it for the first time, but in a way that could be parsed better, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I guess like one of the things that uh, I remember one of the earliest moments where I was sort of thrown off by translation or the concept of translation. I'm, I've never translated anything, but the concept of it was uh, when I was in my uh, undergrad and I, I got out my degree in English and I remember getting there doing my undergrad and being like, oh, um, you know, at some at one point or another, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm fine reading anything in translation. Like, it's just as good. I don't I don't really care. Like, I don't I don't see the reason ever to ever learn any languages and read them in the original. Um, you know, just something like a dumb 20 year old would say. Uh, and someone pointed out to me, they were like, you know, it's it's it really translation is essentially rewriting. Like it's it is in many ways like a, a total reimagination. Um and I, you know, I never knew how much I actually believed that it was akin to rewriting or not. But the very the, the idea kind of struck me and stuck with me. Like, did you feel like you were rewriting at times? Which isn't to say, like, did you go off the reservation or like, I'm not trying to get you to tell on yourself. Uh, but like, did you did you feel like you were sort of like authoring Pathologic 2 as much as you were translating it? Yeah, absolutely. And before I kind of get into the nitty gritty. Uh, nitty gritty detail on the work that I did. Um, I should also mention that I worked with um, Alfina, who uh, did the kind of like the raw translations of um, a oh, lot cool. of the script, um, but also with her own creative touch and her own voice. Um, and I also had my collaborators, Laura Mache, Bruno Diaz, and uh, Kat Manning, um, who... Um, I oversaw their work and edited all of it, um, but they also handled large parts of the script on their own. Um, so it's also just to establish like a really collaborative process. Um, that's wonderful. But yeah, like in terms of rewriting, like that's a perfect way of putting it because like, especially Ice Pick Lodge, the developers of Pathologic, they expected that when from our earliest conversations. Um, actually, my writing test for the game was the character Bad Grief. And... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the reason they sent me him was because his... In the Russian script, his dialogue is steeped in, like, metaphor and wordplay that is all heavily based off language that is highly specific to the Russian language and Russian history. So... Oh, wow. That's <laughs> challenging. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. Like, he was... That character took 10 times as long to localize as any other character because nearly every line of dialogue he had had to be rewritten in a way where it retained the mood and the feeling of the original and also the meaning in a lot of ways, but arrived there through different language, through different words, through different sentences, through different metaphors. Like, there was a, like a six month period where every morning when I was taking a shower, I was just like turning over Russian idioms in my head, like trying to like <laughs> come up with some way that I could communicate the same concept in English is is rough. It reminds me of how people talk about translating Derrida, where they say, you know, like it's it's 
just hell because every single thing he's saying is or could be or maybe a uh, like a a turn of phrase in French. Like he might be making a pun or a joke or something. And it's like, how do you do I focus on making this work? Do I keep it out entirely? And I I personally agree with your approach. Uh, not that I'd be able to replicate it, but the idea of like, yeah, no, like make rewrite so the puns land like that's the character feels very he feels very witty he feels very much like a wry smile kind of guy and i think like that would have been lost had had it just been like well these are russian idioms we're not gonna be able to get anything out of them exactly yeah and and then that's not what i speak lodge wanted either like they wanted to give the people working like the localization team kind of room to like creatively interpret the script and you know, they had to pull us back sometimes and be like, okay, this line is a little bit, like, too off base for the character, or maybe, like, okay. we need to have a conversation about, like, what's going on with the script. <laughs> so, like, they were really protective of their script, which is fantastic. Um, like, it was, like, really, I feel like it's the perfect way to kind of handle that kind of localization, where, like, it's really in-house, but it's the localizers still have, like, a lot of creative freedom to kind of do their own work. That's really cool. So, uh, you know, I want to get back to Pathologic 2 eventually because I want to talk to you more about what you love in the game and what you loved about Pathologic 1 and and all that. But I just I feel like I would be remiss not to take this moment to also shift to your work. So you talk about like, you know, all the things that you did within like rewriting and the ways that you were able to craft these characters and work collaboratively. And it, it really does sound like kind of a perfect gaming uh ecosystem wherein like or game design ecosystem where it's like you know everyone's kind of working together and it feels like the skills you brought would really lend themselves to narrative design so as i do with many of my guests i don't want to tell people what your cv is um i think it'd be better if you did so uh, what is your what is the rest of your career as like a narrative designer looked like yeah um i started off writing dwarf Dwarf Fortress fan fiction for the Something Awful forums. <laughs> uh, I mean, I can't blame you for that. That rocks. <laughs> um, <laughs> in like 2010 or so, when I first like I got out of the military and I started going to college for the first time, um, and on the Something Awful forums, I started posting this let's play of Dwarf Fortress. Um, and Dwarf Fortress, if any of your listeners don't know, is like this very Oh, I hope they know. But yeah, yes, yeah. I, I also hope they do, but it's this very dense um, kind of procedural storytelling game um, from like a single creator, Tarn Adams, and his brother, Zach Adams, who also helps out with the game. Um, I met them recently. They're like super amazing and cool and just like the sweetest people. Um, <laughs> but what I did was I played through a session of Dwarf Fortress, like a single run, because the game always ends in like failure and defeat and your fortress being destroyed by goblins or all of your dwarves getting into like a civil war or whatever. It really lends itself to kind of, you know, authored stories. And I paired that. It seems like oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I want to say it's very much a, uh, I'm, I'm starting to notice a theme between your favorite games. <laughs> yeah, um. exactly. <laughs> yeah. But go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Um, so I paired that with artwork from my friend, Princess Cavalinas, um, and a musician who, Thomas Verkel, who was one of the musicians for Homestuck at the time. 
And oh, cool. Yeah, and we like released this Let's Play on the Something Awful forums, like one update a month. Sometimes we got a little delayed, but it went on for like three years before we actually finished it. Um, Man, that's so good. Yeah. That's a, that's such a forums thing too. Like I can't even imagine that happening outside of. I know YouTube has stuff like that, and and it it happens, but like it feels like the best case scenario of the forums to have something like that. I know, like, and then that was so specific to like the something awful let's play forms to like yeah like and really that was what got me into pathologic in the first place to like that rock paper shotgun um article series from quentin smith was really similar to a let's play it was essentially just a published one but yeah um after we finished that i decided instead of like making fan fiction for games i just wanted to make games um <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So I started making Twine games. Um, I learned some JavaScript and some CSS because I didn't know any coding or anything like that at the time. I was kind of new writing and kind of making things and organizing a project. Like I felt really confident at the time because like, yeah, I did like, you know, this what was basically kind of a webcomic or a let's play. Like I did this weird thing for three years and I actually finished it. I want to finish some other things. Hmm. Hmm. So I started making Twine games. Um, I made a couple of those. They usually took about six or seven months to make. Um, and I got really involved in the interactive fiction community. Oh, cool. Through that. So what, what kind of interactive fiction were you working with? Because I know that term kind of has become capacious in a way that I always mess up on. Like, I, I, it could be a visual novel. It could be something entirely different. It could be experimental games. Like, what kind of interactive fiction were you involved with? Yeah, it's it's a really dense, it's a dense term that refers <laughs> to a lot of different, like, design traditions. So I got started around what people were referring to at the time as the Twine Revolution, which referred to cool. a lot of experimental introspective games with limited branching that you could play in five to ten minutes in your web browser like howling dogs um force master my father's long on legs um games like that and then i started to kind of get an inroad to the parser community um like mm -hmm. emily short andrew plotkin um yeah creators from that design tradition uh, because they were taking notice of what was going on in Twine, and because I was making Twine games, and they were noticing Twine, I became really interested in the history of their works. It's obviously, that particular interactive fiction community goes back to the 1980s, but especially has been very prolific and putting out really stunning work since like the late 1990s or so. Um, That's interesting. So that was really fascinating to me because I felt like, oh, the Twine Revolution, you know, this 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 brand new thing. Everyone is, you know, doing all this new stuff. And then I kind of realized around 2014 or 2015 that actually, <laughs> oh, this actually goes all the way back to the 1990s. It's just I didn't notice because, you know, this is a really niche community. <laughs> it's always great when, like, what is old is new again and what is new is old again. Like, that's just a... I feel like that's something that always has to happen when you're uh, when you're getting into something, especially something like Twine or something like interactive fiction. Like you just realize you, you get really confident about the thing you're doing. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, actually, no, I, I guess this is this is something that someone has already done. Exactly, we're yeah. have to come, become confident about something else. Yeah. And that's it's like really exciting when you figure that out. Cause it's like, oh, OK, so people have like already been talking about these problems I'm running into for over a decade and 
even have some answers to some of them already, <laughs> which is really nice. Yeah. Yeah. What I what I like about your story, too, is, you know, there's this sense of uh, the sense of sort of like discovery and collaboration that really is shot through all of your your design work. And it, you know, it feels I think Twine gets a bad reputation or, or maybe not anymore because it's not as uh, it's not as widely used as it was in the Twine Revolution. But like, you know, like I remember I talked to um, I talked to uh, Warren um about uh, my father's long, long legs quite a while ago. And um, it was sort of the same thing where, like, Twine games get a really, like, bad rep because it's just, like, the idea is, like, oh, they're lazy or, like, they're from people who can't make video games. They're not actually games. It's uh, it's just a story. And on some level, like, the actual sort of act of, like, massive, massive collaboration, like you're describing, wherein, like, people have stuff that they can do and stuff that they can't do. And they rely on each other to produce this massive thing that not one of them could do on their own. Like that makes it feel less like, and I mean, I love literature. I've, I've, I've dedicated most of my life to it, but like it's, it's, it's different than literature. It's more than literature in a certain way. Yeah. Like it's a design tradition and it like Mm. there's bodies of work that people respond to over time. And like, all these authors are like responding to that and also things outside of themselves and adjacent to themselves and not. Yeah. Also Michael's work is amazing. I love his, I always, I always yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. I end up shouting him out. I was calling Warren one. instead of Michael. It's because of his Twitter tag. <laughs> I know it's Warren is dead. Yeah. And I, I talk to him all the time. I don't, it's really, it's one of those things where like inevitably, uh, it's just one of those, uh, names where you're like, Oh yeah, that's the guy I know. It's a, the, that person has a handle that's this and that's yeah. their name. Uh, Michael quote internet for you. Michael Warren Lutz. That's that's his official name. Yeah, though. that's Michael Warren Lutz. Yeah. And I just I just like to call him his nickname. That's all. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's I guess like the the follow up that I should ask is, do you consider yourself a do you consider yourself a designer more than a writer or do you consider yourself like that's the wrong question. Do you consider yourself part of a design tradition or part of a literary tradition? Because I could see both being the case. I think at this point, I kind of see myself as being part of more of a design tradition, um, just because in the past couple of years, um, that's what a lot of my work is focused more towards, just because it's what I've been getting hired to do. Um, Mm. So the balance of design to writing ends up leaning more towards design um not in the case of pathologic in that case the design was ice pick lodge and i was purely handling like localization and editing which is sure um like the design was already in place there so that was actually kind of nice in that regard like having a quarter of a million word script that i didn't have to think about any design problems on <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no, that that must have been sort of like a refreshing change of pace right yeah um it, can you talk about some of the other games you've made, though, like some of the uh, things that you've made in the past, things that you are working on now? I know we, we've briefly discussed uh, some of the stuff you're working on now, and I definitely want you to to plug away on that. Like, I, I want to hear all about, like, what you're what you've been up to. Yeah. Um, so a couple things I worked on that have come out. I worked on Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, which I'm still really proud of. I think that was an excellent game. And I worked with some amazing people on it. And actually, um, everyone I worked with on Pathologic were people that I worked with on Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. We, we worked so oh, well wow. together okay. on that game that we decided to, like, essentially when I 
got the position with Ice Pick Lodge. I was like, okay, I need collaborators. Who do I work well with? And we had just finished Where the Water Tastes Like Wine. So it was kind of a perfect situation. Um, That's great. So other than that game, um, I'm working right now on Signs of the Sojourner, uh, which is like a narrative deck builder. And it's actually currently on Indiegogo. Um, but instead, essentially it's like a card game kind of similar to a lot of hard video games. Um, but instead of yeah. battles, um, you're actually having conversations with people. And the card game oh, is cool. a metaphor for trying to build like a relationship with them and connect with them in a conversation. Oh, wow. So in a lot of ways, it reminds me of, I mean, do you get any sort of comparisons there to things like Undertale or that sort of like Toby Fox-ish kind of stuff where like conversation and, and restraint were, were kind of introduced, maybe something like uh, off or something like that, where it really kind of questions the your your choices to battle. Yeah, exactly. Like it kind of makes you rethink about the mechanics that you're familiar with. Like the tagline mm. that we use is your deck is your character uh, because the cards represent certain styles of communication. Um, and it, oh, that's cool. Yeah, it leads to like really interesting narrative outcomes. Um, so there's Sojourner. There's also Battle Cakes, um, which is a game I'm working on with Volcano Bean. Um, and I'm narrative designer and co-writer on that. And it's kind of like this RPG where you play this group of cupcakes who are trying to save the world. <laughs> and it's like a game for kids. Like, so it's completely different from all the horror and stuff that I work on. It sounds fun. Yeah. I mean, do you have to do you have to watch yourself where like it seems to me it seems like this is what I was sort of like uh, teasing earlier. But like just to make it explicit for the listeners, like it, it seems to me that most of the games you play and most of the games that inspire you are um, are uh, these uh, games that kind of have a lot to do with failure uh, or like ultimate failure uh difficulty um is that fair to say yeah absolutely like a hundred percent yeah and i mean like i i i can say a lot about that with pathologic too as well like i i think we we can definitely talk about that but like first question is it difficult to write a kid's game without kind of like just saying like okay this game is about like how nothing is possible and like where you're gonna fail like that seems like a rough kid's game yeah and it it would be rough and they have to rein me in on that a lot and i kind of have to like <laughs> like it fortunately i'm growing up in a time where like there's like a lot of kids media that deals with really difficult subjects like steven universe and adventure yes. time so like i can kind of absolutely draw on those more for inspiration where like you know it's not like hokey and insincere it's like stuff that's like actually meaningful in a way that's less horrifying than, you know, pathologic or any of the other things that I worked on. But yeah, it, it, it is difficult sometimes. It's like a different mindset. I have to like mm -hmm. a different brain that I have to tune into for sure. Well, so what is it about, what is it about difficulty that, that draws you? I think it's, I, I just don't want to like get into a box of doing the same thing over and over again. And I'm also curious mm. about doing stuff that's wildly different compared to what I'm used to so that I can kind of learn from that and pull it back into what I decide I enjoy. Um, okay. Like I kind of think about how like um, the Mad Max director also worked on like Happy Feet, 
Like it's kind of, <laughs> that kind of discrepancy. Sure. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I think like the, you know, the, the question of, so let me put it this way. One of the things I really love about pathologic too. And like a lot of people were, were asking me about it when I, when I tweeted about it or saying like, cause I, I thought it was like ultra well received and I was surprised to find out that uh, people had mixed opinions or people hadn't heard of it. And it just like, it surprised me. Um, so I was, I was, was just like, everyone should just go play this game. Um, and people were like, well, is it like, people said it's like so hard and it, it like, that like you die so often that it kind of wastes your time. And I was like, I, I just don't think that's true. Like, <laughs> I think it being difficult is kind of the point. Like, it's fun to play something that's hard. It's fun to play something that puts you in a situation where, yeah, like this whole town is extremely screwed up and extremely like not going to make it. And you are not the hero to fix it necessarily, but not without a lot of work. Um, and I don't know, like that in some ways that feels cathartic. Um, and I don't know if that's the same for you, but it like, there's something about it that just feels good to me to think about. Um, it like, I just, I want to think about that a lot. Yeah, it is cathartic and I feel like that's the one thing that I've been obsessed with in my career of making games is the idea of the story continuing past failure and engaging Mm. with what failure means and what failure feels like. But it's also the hardest thing to communicate to people who play video games because throughout the entire design tradition of video games, like failure (laughs) means game over. Failure means you messed up. Failure means there's a punishment and you have to correct it and continue. Um, Because even in like challenging games like Dark Souls and series like that, um, failure teaches you. Um, Right. Whereas in something like pathologic, failure isn't necessarily teaching you anything. It just wants you to fail and think about what it means to fail. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's it was something in my last playthrough and I was I was kind of teasing uh, I wasn't teasing this, but I suggested it when we were chatting uh, before the show. Like I I had to, I stopped it when we were originally going to uh, record and then we recorded a little later, which was great because what happened was after I stopped my run of pathologic, I was really stressed out because the like the, the it, I had found out like I was I was getting to a point where everyone hated me. And it was early in the game and everyone still hated me or will always hate me. I'm not sure. Um, depends on what happens, I guess. But the uh, I couldn't get anywhere to sleep. And I was like, I need to go to sleep or else this exhaustion is going to kill me. Um, but there's no beds and no one trusts me. Uh, so I can't go to sleep. And I just caught myself thinking, like, what if I couldn't go to sleep in real life. Like this is making me think about what it would be like to just be stuck in this position where I couldn't sleep. Um, and it was horrifying. And it's like something that I would never think about and having to think about it was, um, I don't know. This is trite to say, but it was like, it was a little bit, uh, surprising. Like it, it, it was eye opening in a way. Right. Yeah. Like I, I think what ice pick lodge was going for there is like this idea that it's not just, hunger and sleep aren't just like these meters that you kind of balance as you walk through and experience the story, but like they're an actual experience that you have to engage with. 
Yeah. And that's like when, when people are like, oh, you know, it's just it seems so hard. I understand why why people are frustrated with difficult games. And I understand why that like that discourse exists. But also, I think like if you made it easier, then those wouldn't be an experience. And that's just like such a tricky thing to to balance. I got kind of desperate after the game came out because of the way reviews were coming uh the way that reviews were discussing it and i think i made this tweet mm-hmm. thread where i was like okay it's okay to die in pathologic actually you should die over and over again because there's specifically like at least ten thousand words that to translate that you can only see if you're failing <laughs> like there are there's so please, many please fail so i hope my job wasn't a waste of time exactly exactly like there's so many instances <laughs> in pathologic where it's there are many story arcs where failure actually leads to more interesting and fleshed out outcomes than quote unquote succeeding in them would. And yeah, and I think that's a large, like there's not a lot of games that do that. Like usually you get a game over or you die and you start over, you load your last save. Whereas in pathologic, you can't even do that. Like if you try to load your last save, it knows that you did that and retains the consequences for it. Right. I think like the other thing about it is it's very difficult to explain a game like that and not in a way that makes it seem like it's insulting you. Yeah, it's hard not to sound like an asshole. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like it's hard to make it seem like, oh, no, no, no. The game like does not think you're a bad person for losing or like the game isn't saying like, well, you are a terrible hero. Um, You know, this town needed a better hero. It's like the game is trying to tell you that like there's not a lot of situations you're going to succeed in period in this world. Um, right. You just kind of have to come to terms with that. Yeah. And as trying to like, I felt like I, it's, it's difficult because I feel like the Russian fan community for pathologic understands the game so much differently than the English audience did. So I ended up doing like a lot of uh, tweet threads after the game came out where I was kind of like trying to bridge that barrier, I guess. And like Mark, right. the you know, in Pathologic, when you die, he's on the theater stage and he talks shit to you about the fact that yeah. you died. And I was trying to stress to the English playing audience that the fact that Mark is scolding you doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It just means Mark is an asshole who Mark is a character yeah. who has his own priorities, which is his theater production not getting fucked up. Um, personally, I think Mark is a piece of shit and you should do whatever you can to just piss him off at every opportunity, even if that includes dying over and over again. Yeah, I had like, I'm very, very careful in games like, um, pathologic and in pathologic, uh, for not like, I want to be careful to be like a nice person, uh, as often as I can to people I'm talking to, which is not always going to work in pathologic, but I was not at all worried about being a jerk to Mark. Right. (laughs) And Mark is clearly just like full of himself and he's a typical villain. Right. And, you know, I don't want to make assumptions about anyone's feelings about life and who deserves life, but it's very difficult to keep all the characters in pathologic alive. But if you really think about it, how many of them deserve to live anyway? Like, it's, <laughs> like it, it's a lot less stressful when you consider, you know, I don't want to name names, but some of those characters, they, like, I don't want to play favorites either, because, like, 
I, there's always some segment of the community who like really feel strongly about a particular character, but some of them, the world might be a better place. The town might be a better place if they kind of <laughs> kick the there. bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 I think like, and, and the, this was something that I remember from, and I bounced off of this game very hard and it's a super, you know, typical triple A game. Um, but I remember when I got back into gaming, one of the games, like I, I had a break in gaming uh, between like, I don't know, mainly during college. I didn't game very much. And the the first game system I got that was like properly next gen after the PS2 was it was an Xbox 360. And so I was behind in a bunch of games. And I one of the games I bought was uh, Dead Rising because I was like, oh, everyone seems to love this game. Oh, yeah, I love and that game. Th- it's a great game. Like, it's a super good game. And I bounced off of it so hard because i was like well i can't save everyone like there's someone dying and i can't get there because like i'm just like this one guy and i can't do it um there are too many zombies i'm not gonna be able to save this person at all and like i think about that all the time because it's like why should that be such a problem like why should i why should i want i wouldn't like that in literature um i wouldn't like it in a movie why does it have to be a power fantasy in a video game exactly yeah and it's 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 tough in video games because when you talk about scope and everything usually one of the first things that gets cut is like routes that most players won't see so Mm. if you have Mm. a route where a character dies that i think players usually associate that with there being less narrative content and as a narrative designer, that's something I always stress in projects that involve a lot of this kind of like Last Express slash Majora's Mask slash even Dead Rising 1 kind of narrative yeah. approach to narrative design where there's multiple valid outcomes to narrative situations that when the player does fail, there should be story threads that are unique for that certain path so that they don't feel like they had an inferior experience for failing. And I feel like that's yeah, something absolutely. in particular like hones in on that there are many routes where failing leads to more essentially narrative content. Yeah, someone asked me to explain why like I didn't mind failing in Pathologic. They were like, well, what what like because I said I was like, oh, the game just like kind of opens it up for you to fail. Like it doesn't doesn't need to punish you necessarily in the way that like punishment usually means in video games. And they're like, well, why? And I was like, well, just cause like, that's just what's going to happen in this town. Like you get there and it's immediately doomed. Even if you didn't see the beginning part, like it's obvious that things good's going to happen here. Um, and that opens things up to like, be like, well, what's the experience I'm going to have? Um, exactly. which is not really what happens in video games too often. Yeah, and it, it's tough because because that's not the case in most video games. It's really hard to explain to people that, no, no, this is the opposite of, like, everything you've been taught about playing a video game. And so yeah. it's yeah. it's really easy to kind of go into this experience and die a lot and think, oh, I'm doing something wrong, I'm getting really frustrated, and kind of bounce off the game before you can get a chance to get a glimpse at what it's doing differently. So let me ask you, um, you know, one of the things we've talked a lot about uh, in our conversation so far is is failure and this this idea of like uh, difficulty and like missing paths and, and all this stuff. How much of uh, uh, how much of your gaming uh, design 
uh, is about recursion. Like, I, I don't want to put it too much on the uh, I don't want to put it too much on the nose, but like it seems like especially coming from a twine perspective, uh, that inversion might be something that you um, care about. Or not inversion, excuse me, recursion, recursion. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is. Like, it's, I feel like those were always the games that affected me the most. Like, besides Pathologic, mm-hmm. I also referenced Majora's Mask, which is my favorite Zelda yeah. game, um, purely from a narrative an design game. perspective. But also the stories in it are incredible. Um, but there's um, another game I've been working on for a couple of years, Um called Southern Monsters, and mm. it comes out early next year. I kickstarted it in early 2017, so it's been a pretty long development cycle. Um, but it's an autobiographical game uh, made in Unity with ink, um, and it's, like, densely interactive fiction. Like, it has a 120,000-word script. Um, wow. It has hundreds of these gorgeous illustrations from Patrick. It has an original soundtrack. Um, I Like, we've been working on it for a really long time. Um, but the basic story of it is that you play this... It's autobiographical. You play a teenager mm-hmm. in South Arkansas um, who believes in cryptids, and they specifically believe in a cryptid um, in their town called the Boggy Creek Monster. And, okay. And... Is that a real cryptid or is Yeah, that... it's a real cryptid. There's like a bunch of okay. there's like a bunch of like amazing uh documentaries about it that were released in like the late seventies and the early eighties. Like the legend of Boggy Creek. It's a really cheesy it was actually like Sounds great. Not to get too off track, but the movie is No, really there's fantastic. there's no off track. Yeah. Here. <laughs> okay, You're cool, good. cool. Um <laughs> it's a really good movie. You should watch it. It was like actually an inspiration on the Blair Witch because it was one of the first things oh, wow. that merged like uh fiction horror and like through a documentary lens. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's fascinating. I love that. And it's it's not a cryptid that I'm like, I'm, you know, like I'm thinking, oh, you know, I know Moth Mothman and I know, you know, Bigfoot, obviously, or like the Chupacabra, but I've never heard of Boggy Creek. Yeah, it's it's pretty much a regional Bigfoot variation. Like it's a big hairy guy. That's cool. But um, so it's not too fascinating from a design <laughs> perspective. But um, listen, there's there's nothing not interesting about a big hairy guy. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, that's what we all can aspire to in our lives, anyway. Is like <laughs> that's, that's what I like to think of myself as. Yeah, yeah, wandering around the woods and having people spread rumors about our existence. That's <laughs> all we want. It would be something. I mean, it's, I wouldn't mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 really cool. Like the the idea of. The idea of like a cryptid being part, being like the center point of a, of an interactive novel is a really cool idea because of course, like marrying the idea of something horrifying with a genre that does not encourage jump scares in video games is, um, I think something people are not doing enough of. Exactly. And in Southern Monsters, the premise of it is that you play this, uh, disabled teenager in South Arkansas who mm-hmm. moderates, um, a form in the mid 2000s for people who believe in the paranormal. Um, So kind of the way you're interacting with the game is it's set across five days in this teenager's life. And it has a very similar narrative design to like Majora's Mask and Pathologic in that 
you have a wide range of activities that you can take part in. Like you can do research on the monster. You can leave your house and try to find the monster at night. You can moderate the message board. You can talk to your friends. You can play with your cat. You can eat snacks like peanuts and Coke and moon pies and pork rinds and all the other delicacies of the American (laughs) South. Um, And the game has this responsive narrative design that tracks everything you're doing and generates certain narrative threads in response to it. Um, So you can completely fail at locating uh, what the teenager believes is the monster. Like, you can go out into the swamp and get bitten by a snake, then you can have a conversation with your, like, hick cousin online about getting bitten by a snake, and he'll go out into the swamp and try to kill the snake for you. Like, it all of this like unfolds across like five days and yeah it's there's like this recursive element to it that i don't know like that that's the most i love that that's the most direct example i think of me merging autobiography and what interests me about narrative design and video games but that kind of like groundhog's day repetition really fascinates me i will definitely uh be trying to get you on the show to talk about that when that comes out that's very cool hell yeah um, yeah, I think like what's fascinating about that to me is that it focuses on the element of one of the things that stresses me out about gaming. And I think it's something that, that limits my enjoyment of gaming as well. Uh, I, I was kind of grappling this with this when I was playing, um, Bloodstained, uh, the most recent Bloodstained and like. It's fine. Like it's a decent enough game. Um, I enjoy Metroidvanias, Castlevanias, whatever you want to call them. But um, uh, it's good. Uh, it's well designed. But there's like a million little things you can do. You can become just like a hyper completist with it. Um, and there's something very unsatisfying with being a hyper completist <laughs> with that game. Where like at a certain point, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna kill this enemy until I get every single drop it has. Um, and I just ended up asking myself, why am I doing this? And it's like, well, I don't want to miss out on anything. And I think that that impulse is something that's really um, very, very prevalent in gaming, where like you don't want to miss out on anything. Um, and that's what was so that's what's so good to me about Pathologic and Majora's Mask and games like that is that they absolutely force you to um, miss out on something. Uh, you have to miss out on something. You can always come back. The recursion is part of it, but like, you're not going to be able to do everything in one go. <laughs> it's exactly, and like, it's freeing in a way. With like, when you have that kind of design, and you, yeah, it's yeah, it's kind of like a river with like multiple forks. Like, you can kind of like split off into different streams, but the river just kind of keeps flowing onward and. Like, you, it doesn't stop suddenly, and, like, you can't really go backwards and do something else. You just kind of have to continue forward no matter what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, I wonder, can you talk with me a little bit about um, what appeals to you in terms of that kind of, I don't know, that urge to move forward and that defeat. I mean, it's such a, it's such a complicated dialectic. If I can, uh, you know, use the word that I'm sure no one wants me to use, uh, <laughs> but I'll use it anyway. Um, it's such a complicated dialectic in thinking about like, you know, failure and not forced progression. Cause that makes it sound like it's a death March, but like, 
um, uh, acquiescence and progress, uh, sort of like moving forward despite what's happened to us in the past. I mean, how do you sort of imagine those two things working out with each other? Because there's plenty of games which like privilege failure, um, thinking about not just Dark Souls, but games like um, well, games like Mario Maker, right? Like where games like uh, uh, people design these levels where you absolutely are going to fail most of the time. Um, or even those sort of like 8-bit um, uh, homages to difficulty, like you have to beat the game or whatever. Um, like those are about difficulty and failure and have no sort of redemptive arc. Uh, and it's hard, I think. It's a tricky thing to distinguish games like that from games like Pathologic 2 or from Southern Monsters or from um, uh, Majora's Mask. How do you see, how do you sort of imagine these games or your ideal game or whatever, however you want to answer the question, um, bringing this kind of like brutal and like crushing failure, but also then providing some sort of um, salve or, or, or redemption or however you want to imagine it. I think games that are structured that way are the most narratively compelling because it's it allows you to tell stories that mirror experiences that we encounter in our own lives. It's mm. it's a lot different from like I think of something like Skyrim, which I love Skyrim, but like when you know when you get out of the cave and you have like two hundred quest markers and you know all that is this kind of like frozen static until you the hero kind of go over there and like engage in that story that'll play out you know mostly the same other than like a, a binary choice or two but there's like oh yeah and you can do it all i yeah. don't have to pick whether i want to be in the thieves guild or the uh you know the the mages guild or the you know warriors guild or whatever it doesn't matter i can just be in all of them yeah you can be the head of all of them and that's different from even yeah, Morrowind, right. which is actually another game that i love in fact i love the design of that game a lot more than skyrim because it deliberately makes you draw decisions like between those kinds of things like there's some overlap you can be like the head of multiple guilds but other ones they're like they'll just like kick you out of the door if you come in there and you're like mm -hmm. in the morag tong or something yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I always I like that more, too, because it feels it it it's hard because you have to give up the power fantasy, but it feels better to, like, have things closed off to you narratively, because, of course, like it feels wrong if you are the head of the black hand or whatever it is in uh, the Assassin's Guild in um, in uh, Skyrim or in, in Oblivion or whatever. And you've killed, you know, how many dozens of people. And then you also are just like beloved in town. It's like this feels this feels strange. Like I'm pretty sure no one would like me at this point. I'm not sure I can keep up the charade. I'm not sure I've done anything to keep up the charade. Um, so having choices, yeah. I mean that that's I like that answer because it helps me understand why I find the um, <laughs> the choices matter tag on uh, the Steam forums or the Steam uh, on the Steam store so upsetting because uh, it's like not all these choices actually matter yeah. choices just for the sake of choice, just for the sake of like stakes in and of themselves or like characters you miss out on or whatever are kind of worthless. Yeah. There's like a big difference between like choices and aesthetic and choice as like a way of exploring compelling narrative outcomes. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like, 
what you said about recursion and what you said about like having to go back and assess your assess what you've done and you know the fact that pathologic 2 for instance remembers your deaths and and will refer back to them or or impact your playthrough the next time because of them or you know you can't get away from them that like that inability to cheat the system to like become like to cheese uh, pathologic 2 for uh, for lack of a better word like that is it doesn't make it more fun necessarily, but it makes it more compelling. Exactly. Yeah. It's also really hard to play test. <laughs> that is one like downside I bet. of this. It's, like, do you, how how do you play test a game like that? Uh, so there's like a couple of like really cool things you can do. Um, like I'm working on Signs of the Sojourner right now, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. And that game actually has yeah. a really similar narrative design to Southern Monsters and some other things I've worked on, and that it has five cycles that um, play out about maybe over probably about four to six hours of playtime. Um, but the game has really dense story arcs that kind of um, unfold in different ways and are mutually exclusive to each other, like in the same way that everything we've been talking about. You can probably see a lot of common themes between the things that I work on at this point. Um, yeah, but I, I, I like, I really like the, the common themes because I've never thought about twine games and difficult games in the same kind of, how to say this in the same breath before, like they they haven't like come into my mind at this in the same way. And I've never really realized that like emotionally difficult or like decision, difficult decisions or like, uh, even, even something like pathologic too, which is difficult mechanically and decision-based like there's a lot of that in in interactive fiction i mean that's not that's not far off yeah because something that twine games to do or did or still do really well is psychological interiority and like the choices Mm. in those feel small stakes but usually they're also very deeply embedded with like emotional and psychological uh, material that's really tough to grapple with and i think yeah. even when you kind of like get to this design space where you're working in a more traditional bioware fashion with like narrative outcomes <laughs> and dialogue options um like that still remains relevant definitely so let me i i did i did uh tease you in i, I don't know why i keep saying tease uh, it's like my word of the night i did uh kind of ingratiate you into coming on this by telling you that it is a leftist podcast, which it certainly is. I hope that hasn't, Hell yeah. I hope it hasn't seemed like a right wing podcast or anything. Nope. <laughs> like, Wouldn't be I haven't on been it. as explicitly <laughs> leftist. Okay, good, good, good. Um, but uh, I do want to ask you politically, um, this question about difficulty, right, is one of the things that gets the worst possible people talking, um, which is to say not the people who are upset about difficult games or want an easier game. Those people are mostly fine um but like people who imagine that difficulty sliders or something like that are an affront to gaming as a tradition or like an affront to sort of their passion or or whatever right um how do you like what is your thought on that like what is your thought on difficulty sliders all this conversation about it like you know uh the idea of people who are not true gamers or I, I don't know exactly the word to say it with it doesn't make it seem like I'm trying to uh, make a parody of these people, which I guess in many ways I am um, like, how do you approach this? I mean, a, as a designer and then B as someone with, um, you know, left-wing sympathies as a leftist, however you want to imagine it. Yeah. It's 
it's tough because it's complicated. And I'm going to say straight yeah. off that I'm going to try to avoid both sidings this because I, I do think <laughs> the people who get really passionate about um, not having difficulty options are basically being assholes a lot of the time because difficulty is subjective. Mm -hmm. And something else yeah. that I also really care about as a disabled person, and particularly a disabled leftist, is that accessibility and inclusion are important. And since difficulty is subjective, that means that the point of difficulty sliders isn't to rob yourself of an experience. It's so that players can essentially curate their own experience for themselves based off their needs and their abilities. Mm. And it's tough to have that conversation because you do have the assholes, but there's also some arguments that, like, of course, Celeste handled it really well. And I feel like, of course, Pathologic handled it really well where it had these difficulty sliders, but attached to the difficulty sliders is this kind of statement of intent from the developers where we're they're, they talk about why they designed the game to be a certain way, and then they kind yeah. of give you sliders trusting you to adjust them to arrive at that experience. That's really interesting. I've never really thought about... Because like I, one of the things I'm really interested in in my literary work, which I mean, I should say was interested, it's not like a field that has a lot of uh, options for people, although it comes up in my video game work too, like this question of intention, right, is so, so important to me. Um, and I never really thought about statements of intent from developers being something that could produce an understanding of difficulty before. That's really elucidating. I think like it it recalls to me like going to, I don't know, like a modern art museum, right? And uh, seeing something that you think or like someone might say. Yeah, my kid could do that or, or like what's the, the, you know, the common thing people say when they go to modern art museums, they go and walk into MoMA and say, you know, the, this, this looks like something that, something that, that I, I, you know, someone threw up on a canvas or something. Um, and then you read the intention, right? Intention, right? Like one of my favorite uh, pieces ever uh, that I've seen in a, in a gallery is a uh, Hanoki by, um, by oh gosh uh why am i why am i blanking on what this person's name is i'm gonna have to look it up it's cool uh, you, Hinoki, you can look it up it's, it's always Hinoki important cypress uh no <laughs> Hinoki cypress art uh no come on oh there it is uh, uh what is it called it's at the art institute of chicago i can actually i found a link so i can put it even in notes um but it's by um I think it's by Robert Evans. I think that's who it's by. Um, and basically he found this massive tree on the side of the road uh, when he was driving through. Uh, oh, sorry, not Robert Evans. Uh, Charles Ray. It's uh, Charles Ray. Um, and his I'll even I'll just read his story. Uh, Ten years ago, while driving up the central coast of California, I spotted a fallen tree in a meadow. Uh, just off the highway, I was instantly drawn to it. It was not only a beautiful log, but to my eyes, it was perfectly embedded in the meadow where it had fallen decades earlier. Pressure from the weather, insects, ultraviolet radiation, and gravity were evident. Total collapse appeared to be no more than a handful of years away. I was inspired to make a sculpture and study many of their logs, but I realized that I'm only interested in this one. And so basically what he did was he uh, he wanted to make an inflatable sculpture. He thought all sorts of stuff. 
and he carved the log from the inside and working his way out, uh, basically cut the tree apart, transported it back to his studio, made silicone molds of it, and reconstructed it with um, reconstructed made silicone molds, made a fiberglass version, sent that to Osaka, and had a woodworker carve it into reality using Japanese cypress, Holy and then shit. that's what's displayed. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, it's just unbelievable. Uh, I'll, I'll link it to you. I'll definitely yeah, remember please. to link this in the, yeah, if you're ever in Chicago, it's, uh, it's, it's marvelous. Um, it's just, it's, it takes up an entire room in a gallery and it just looks like this tree. And especially if you don't think about it too much, like it seems like, Oh, what, what, what did you even do? Like, this isn't anything you did, but like immediately you start thinking like, well, actually like the whole point of this is to make me stop and think about like what actually is the idea of reconstruction? What's the idea of representation? Um, you know, what does artistry mean? What does uh, archiving mean? Can you say anything? Is this the same thing as the tree that was in the meadow? Is it something different? And, like, once you start getting on that track, you start thinking, like, oh, actually, like, my kid couldn't do this. Because my kid, if he made, if she made, like, you know, if my daughter made a uh, a piece that was exactly the same as a rock outside and said, Dad, I made a rock. That would be cool, but I don't think I, I don't think she'd be able to express Charles Ray's intentions there, which is the same thing as saying if my daughter made a really hard Mario maker level, I doubt she could express the intentions of the people from Pathologic. So like that is really, really helpful to me to understand like this isn't going to be for everyone, but there's a reason for that. Exactly. And I think what makes the statement of tint so important, not in the situation that you're describing and also when attached to these difficulty settings is that there was also a train of thought after Pathologic came out from people who wanted difficulty sliders who were not coming from the same position that I come from and that I believe in the accessibility and people subjectively defining their own experiences in response to mm. someone's intent. But their position was more that I should never feel frustrated playing a game. I should never feel bad playing a game. The game should give me options to get rid of feeling bad and feeling frustrated. And so that was also frustrating to hear because when I hear that, yeah. my immediate thought is, no, 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 that's that's not the point. Like, the, <laughs> the, the, like misery is valid. Like, that's a valid emotion for a game or a work of art to, like, inspire in someone. And it's okay to for an artist to like want to inflict that consensually upon someone who is engaging with their artwork. Um, I agree. Yeah. It's so it's really, so it's really complicated because ostensibly I, I completely agree like with difficulty sliders as an accessibility option and also because difficulty is subjective, but not because I think that games shouldn't explore difficult themes or be frustrating or, like, I feel like that's tied in with this just this very commercial school of thought that comes with game design, where it's very player friendly. Like, it's kind of the Skyrim model of like nothing should ever conflict. There, you should be the head of everything, and you know you should just be full Hannah Montana, just have like every perfect <laughs> life. Like, it, it's just not interesting, and I, it it's unfortunate to me when people who play games argue against those kinds of creative risk and games trying to invoke those kinds of emotions in people. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think like one of the things that 
troubles me about that too is, I mean, from a political standpoint, a lot of the works that have been most politically revelatory to me have also been some of the ones that have been least pleasurable in reading, um, which isn't to say I don't find pleasure in them after the fact, but like uh, there's a, there's a Jonathan Franzen essay uh, that I, I should be upfront about and saying I don't like um, that's, that's kind of not neither here nor there, I guess. But Franzen basically talks about one of my favorite authors, William Gaddis and says that, Gaddis's work, um, Gaddis's book, The Recognitions, which is brilliant, uh, is a much better book than his other novel, uh, his other sort of most well-known novel, J.R., because J.R. is uh, experimental and a reader can't, uh, a reader would have a hard time reading it. And so, like, actually, The Recognitions is better because it gets you Gaddis, but most people are going to be able to understand it without having trouble. And J.R. is one of the most important political books, to my political development, at least, um, it's brilliant. It's super smart. It tells everything you want to know about like the stock market and money and the irrationality of the two. And it couldn't do that unless it was made the way it's made, like within it, you know, it's all dialogue. That's the sort of trick. That's the hook of JR. It's like, I think there's like maybe a page worth in a 700 page uh, piece of, of like action words. It's mostly just dialogue and generally unmarked dialogue. So it's sort of hard to read, but that's the whole point. Right. And similar to, you know, other artists, Kathy Acker is a good example or, you know, provocative artists, artists that don't want you to enjoy their uh, films or music, uh, artists that that are intentionally dull. Uh, like there's there's negative feelings are important for understanding the negative elements of the world, I think, Um and sometimes to, it's not okay to just like feel sympathy, but you actually have to feel the feeling itself. Exactly. And also I haven't read that essay, but I find it completely believable that Franze has, uh, Franzen has another shitty takeout in the world that I haven't read yet. <laughs> it's don't read it. It's, it's, that's, that's exactly the, the approach I would say to take to it. And it is like, <laughs> I only read it for, uh, for my dissertation and I was so irritated. I had to read it because I, my intro included stuff on JR and I was like, Ugh, I gotta do the Franzen thing. And it is like 30 pages and thick and the, the only takeaway is I really didn't like this uh, extremely important and great novel because uh, I just couldn't get into it. Yeah. I like the one that I could get into more <laughs> like this. Is, this just makes me want to die. Um, I, I should. But yeah, this, no. But what was your dissertation on? Oh, you don't have to know that. Um, my dissertation was on uh, 20th century uh, American literature. Um, basically, I, I looked at. Um, I looked at works that tried to do, uh, tried to produce aesthetic autonomy um, or political uh, progress or both and failed and then sort of like looked at how the failure got us a little closer, you know, ever, ever closer, ever sort of like inching towards uh, kind of emancipatory or revelatory literature um, is the short version. Uh, but there was a chapter on video games and that's where uh, that's where this whole thing started. Damn, I need to read that. Is I can link it to you please. if you'd like. Yeah, yeah, it's out there somewhere. I mean, it, yeah, it it's free somewhere. I didn't publish it, to, but you know, the designs of thought yeah. that I like. So, sure, yeah, I'd love to love to have you read it. Um, and that goes for anyone listening. If you want me to read my dissertation, you can just <laughs> at me on Twitter or email me. I'm happy to send it out. It's not gonna, it's not gonna make me a ton of money anyway. So it's, uh, it, I mean, it makes me zero money. It's better if people are reading it. Well, uh, Kevin, I don't want to keep you much longer because we've been here an hour and that's usually 
all I like to inflict upon my guests. But the <laughs> um, your work sounds so interesting, and I can't wait to play more of it. Um, I never. This is this is going to sound like something I do all the time, but I've only ever done it once, and maybe I should start doing it all the time. Um, can you give us a recommendation of one of your games to play, and then a recommendation of one like a game that uh, people should play in order to kind of like better understand your work, um, accepting Pathologic and Pathologic Two, which are sort of like <laughs> kind of gimmies at this point. Yeah. So, I think people should play the very substantial demo for Signs of the Sojourner that is currently out. And if they enjoy Great. it, they should back the game on Indiegogo, because if that does really well in its crowdfunding campaign, it'll actually be even more narratively ambitious when it comes out. Um, so that's like a great way of like seeing my work and also making my work better in the near future. So I really recommend that one. Um, nice. One I recommend to understand my work would be uh, Howling Dogs by Porpentine. That was one of the games, first games I played that made me realize I had to play video games. I, that, that I had to make video cool. games. <laughs> That's great. Okay, yeah. I, I have never played that. I've never played Howling Dogs. Um, it's, it's really short. Will. It's like 20 minutes or so, and it's, it's, oh, it's beautiful. So great. I love short games. I, uh, I I should say that I should say like I'm saying this while I am working my way through my first uh, MMO ever. So of course, like that's a very long game. Yeah. But the uh, <laughs> the short short games have always been my favorites. Um, I absolutely love them. I I love when people have something to say and just say it. That is uh oh, it's so satisfying. Um, cool. Okay, I will check that out. Everyone else should as well. I actually, uh, you know, what's funny? Um, the person I often stream with, uh, my my friend Andrew. Uh, just, uh, I just realized, uh, the reason I thought the reason I recognized science of the sojourner was because, uh, I, um, I got an email about it and then I realized it was because Andrew had linked me to it and said, uh, I should get the devs on as a guest. So <laughs> won't he be surprised? Uh, That's excellent. but yeah, but no, no, it looks great. And there's uh yes, it's very substantial demo. I will, um, I'll be playing it. I will, I will tell Everyone, what I think of it as well, but you know, you should just get it because Kevin is a is a wonderful storyteller. Ah, oh, thank you. I'm blushing. You can't see it because this no. is audio, but I'm blushing. Well, I believe you. I believe you. You wouldn't lie about that. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much. Please come back anytime. I'd love to talk to you more about all this stuff. Uh, maybe maybe I can uh, maybe I can uh, get you on to talk about uh, Science of the Sojourner with me after I play it. Uh, we could we could do that as like a little behind behind the paywall thing because i really want to hear your thoughts on a game that uh you have you have not just uh localized but made but it's been a real pleasure and i hope i hope that uh i hope that the popularity of pathologic 2 catches up to um catches up as it's trying to find the best way to say this i hope it catches up as the player base starts to get a little more mature and understanding of what video games can and should do. I hope so too. In the meantime, I'll keep yelling about it. <laughs> Me too. Um, so you are on Twitter at brave mule. Where else can people find your work? Uh, BraveMule.com has a bunch of links to stuff I made, a lot of which you can actually play for free. I mentioned Sojourner cause it has a crowdfunding oh. campaign going on, but 
I also have a bunch of free games yeah. on my itch page. So, you know, check out the free games too. They're free, but you can always pay a little bit of money for it. You can afford it. True. Just to toss a few bucks in. And also, like, the ones that do cost money, like, if anyone has ever, like, people email me sometimes and, like, say they can't afford it, and I just give them a code to it. And it's like, I, I enjoy that, too. Like, I always have a clause in anything I work on that if, like, unless I don't own the rights to it, if anyone emails me and asks for it, I just give it to them. <laughs> That's really nice. That's like a... Uh... Well, yeah, I, I, I can't help but sympathize. I'll say that much. Um, well, uh, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, I hope to have you back soon. Yeah, thanks so much. Take care.